Hi everyone, welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is my old boss, Damon Lindelof. You will all know Damon Lindelof as the showrunner and co-creator of the tiny series called Lost, in which I was lucky enough to play a little part. He also showran and co-created The Leftovers for HBO. He wrote the Star Trek movies, a couple of them, Cowboys and Aliens, Prometheus, you know, small stuff. Damon was lovely enough to step away from the writer's room of The Watchmen, which is the graphic novel that he is adapting for HBO, and give me an hour of his very valuable time and talk to me about his five most formative books. It was really fun. It was so nice to see him again and catch up. And he was so generous with himself and his time and his stories. So uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. It is so lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's so nice seeing you again. It's so nice seeing you. It's been too long. I know it has been. Um, I, uh, so I came up with this. Well, you've listened to the podcast because it's now exists. Yes. So, you know, I just came up with this because I love so cool. reading. And I love, um, as I found after season one, it's just such a fun way to get to talk to somebody. It really is. The excuse, the way I get in the room is to ask you for your books, but it's really just an excuse to sit and talk to you. No, and it is like a biography of someone, right? Where mm. it's sort of like, ooh, like, you know, uh, Julie Bowen, like, is totally into Judy Bloom. Totally. Like, who, who knew? Who knew, like, right? Like, but weren't we all? It's so funny, though, because I feel like I'm totally exposed now that season one is out and in the world because everyone let me come into their lives being like, yeah, sure, I'll talk about books, and then left slightly dazzled an hour later going wait I just told you about my entire childhood so the gig is up but um thank you for doing this I'm happy to talk about John Hamm's childhood good we'll get we'll get to that yeah um tell me about your uh, what you're reading now are you reading anything good at the moment oh my god I am uh at this moment in time I'm reading we were eight years in power mm. the Tana Coates which it. is um, it's all essays that he published in the Atlantic over the course of the Obama presidency uh, the, the essays aren't new but for every essay he writes sort of like a new introduction and then there's a new essay at the end of it that sort of is like and here's Trump so um, have you but, got to the last one I went to hear him speak just in LA yeah yeah LA I was there too there? at the Wilshire Able with all yeah. the other white exactly. people nodding our heads we were, and feeling proud of ourselves totally for how woke we are there. yeah know, yeah exactly. no but um, uh, it's it's become somewhat of um, I think t- to his understandable chagrin like a like a status symbol for yeah. for uh, woke uh, woke uh, in- white intelligentsia to yeah. carry around between the world and me but yeah. Um, uh, it's like his, his writing is incredible and, um, and, uh, and provocative and upsetting and, Mm. uh, like, um, there's nothing like it. So I agree. And I'm, I'm actually, uh, I guess people say reading now for anything that is in book form, but I'm actually listening to that book for my, on, on my commute. So I let her down on audible. Does he narrate it? Uh, he doesn't narrate that uh, one. No, no, no. I don't even know who the guy is. Oh, He's interesting. Good, but yeah, if you yeah, get the yeah. wrong reader, you're completely in totally ruins it, hosed. doesn't it? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Totally. I, that's why Audible is such a gamble. I prefer it, ideally, if it is the person that wrote it. I yeah. feel like you get a level of intention, even if even if they're not the world's greatest readers. He was great at that talk. Although I'd mind it, I, I, I felt... Um, I mind the co-opting. I, I mind the feeling like, oh, we don't get to have you because we're white. I feel like that is only, presumably, to some degree, prolonging the entire problem that we're talking about it it feels like 
no, you're just going to have to surrender to the fact that you're an extremely popular writer. Right. <laughs> with with all races or, or both black and white. And, and I don't know that you get to corral yourself off from the rest of us. Yeah, I, I, I think it's more who knows, but it's the struggle with fame. You know, he yeah. keeps like his reprieve uh, in in the multiple podcasts where I've heard him interviewed is sort of like, hey, I'm just a writer. Right. You know, I'm not an activist. Right, I don't sure. want to be the voice of a generation. Sure. I'm just sort of, because and, and, I think that he didn't get in this to become famous. I get that, yeah. And um, and I think that's got to just, it's it's got to be kind of alarming. You mm-hmm. know, you sort of understand that, um, whereas like someone who uh, wants to be an actor or like now if you're a television showrunner, you're sort of signing up for like, yeah, I've got to do press. Mm-hmm. I've got to like kind of do the song and dance. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a public personality. Mm-hmm. I think that there's probably still a part of most authors that wants to go on book tour and and show up at sort of like an obscure like little nook in San Francisco mm-hmm. and 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 read for 25 people mm-hmm. and then suddenly there he is in front of a thousand people yeah. and um I have some white faces yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand it, it's yeah. less like this book isn't for you but yeah. it's sort of more if your angle is white supremacy isn't going anywhere um that, that this is an incredibly fucked up country that we live in um, and now you're basically a fan of mine. Uh, I think like that the whole like idea just feels a little bit icky. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of what makes it so interesting. Yeah, I agree. And no, it does. It makes him complicated in a way that makes him even as interesting as his writing is. I think. Sure. Yeah. But the idea that I think like a decade ago, certainly from the white perspective, there there wasn't like who's the voice of of what the current status of race in America is, who is that person? Mm-hmm. You, you wouldn't be able to answer that question. And now it's sort of like, oh, it's, it's Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah, he's And so, yeah. like, that, that's got to... Um, th- there's got to be a lot of weight on his yeah. shoulders as a result of that, too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I heard him... Um, the Atlantic have just started a podcast, which I love, and uh, uh, they were interviewing um, the author of Americana, Chimamande. Oh, yeah, my wife read that book. She loves it. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. It came up on the on the podcast. Um, and... Um, and Tanahasi Coates happens to be in the room. I guess he's a friend and he's hanging out in the hotel room in Paris uh-huh. and he's totally chipping into her interview and they have kind of a love hate because I guess they're both the voices, black oh, voices right. of sure, their generation sure. uh-huh. to a degree. Um, although she's ferociously Nigerian and is <laughs> vociferous about the fact that Tanahasi's never set foot in Africa, right. which is always oh, interesting. Which is interesting. Anyway, total sidebar. But it was it's a really good podcast and kind of fun to listen to. Excellent. Um, let's talk about your first book. Which one would you like to talk about first? The one you first gave me was The Stand by Stephen King, but you talk about whichever makes sense to you chronologically. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I mean, um, I'm into nonlinear storytelling, so they don't, I know necessarily that. <laughs> they don't necessarily need to be in the order or the sequencing in which I read them. And I think I was probably 12 or 13 when I read The Stand, if memory serves. Um, Who gave it to you? My dad. Mm. My dad um, was uh, was a voracious reader. He would read like a book every couple days. Really? And he was a big genre guy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also into the classics, but he loved science fiction and fantasy. And um, do you know why? He read a lot of nonfiction as well. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, a, a lot of it is just like whatever floats your boat, what Mm -hmm. your tastes are. But I think that he was 
born in Indiana and was raised by his parents were very religious and um, their entire culture was sort of like built around the, the community of their church. And my dad was kind of like born agnostic slash atheist. Mm-hmm. And also he had an older a brother who was 13 years older than he was. And so his brother basically became like kind of the a surrogate parent for him in many mm. ways and he was unplanned my dad mm-hmm. and so and his parents were older by the time he came along so it, his brother was into like a lot of comic books and superhero fiction and sci-fi and horror stuff right um and that's how he kind of so got inherited into it. it but it's also right. like that's what he liked uh-huh. you know i mean that's that's how like that's how he was raised mm-hmm. and so he always carried a book around with him and um and when I was in little league or uh, or basketball as like a seven or eight year old kid, my dad would come to the game, but he would read a book. And so and it was sort of like, you know, thanks for coming, but fuck you, you know. But then I relate. There was, I relate so badly. But I then, know that's going to be me. But then it was also sort of like, you know, this is the territory on which we will meet. My dad was never interested in sports. He does mm-hmm. did you know it was like he didn't play them he didn't even know how many innings were in a baseball game and Mm -hmm. or 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 how what the rules of football were like that was the area where he could completely and totally engage so Mm. i think that part of my my early interest in you know in what was reading the books that he was reading and my mom uh she's a uh retired now but she was a teacher a reading teacher so you know like but she read to me you know when i was in utero so Mm -hmm. i think that there was just like a real love of books and she was much more and remains much more into sort of like mystery novels and crime fiction mm-hmm. and and of course you know the classic literature that you get taught in ele- elementary school because she was an elementary school teacher but she was sort of less of a genre uh fan i don't mm-hmm. think she like hated it but mm-hmm. she like she gets scared in in horror movies and and my dad kind of got turned on by that stuff do you think being an we mentioned this before we started um, recording but do you think being an only child encouraged a love of literature do you think there was were books a replacement they were for me that's yes. projecting they were for me they were brothers and sisters for me i think for sure you know and also just fundamental escapism yeah and i think that um, I, I don't want to be one of those parents who's oh, that kids these days and their technology and blah 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 but I think like boredom was a big part of yeah, my childhood right. mm-hmm. and it's just sort of this idea of like when you don't have a sibling it's like entertain yourself mm-hmm. and there were books and um, and I, I always liked reading and I felt like uh, I, I liked telling stories from, from a very early age so that was just that was just something that it was my jam so mm-hmm. um you know, I did. Uh, I did spend a lot of time uh, with books and um, and reading and rereading them. And I think that, you know, the stand, at least in my memory, was like one of the first grown-up books that I that I read. Mm-hmm. That it sort of felt like, ooh, like um, this is scary and provocative, and it had the supernatural around it. Mm-hmm. I think it's the second Stephen King book that I read. The first one was Firestarter, mm-hmm. which which is sort of a much uh, simpler book. The Stand is like you know the, it was very intimidating in terms of how large it is. And it was first released, um, which is the one that I read. It was probably like eight hundred plus pages. Wow! And then there was an unabridged edition that was released you know, almost a decade later that had like four hundred pages that he wow. had originally written, and his editor was like Jesus. You know, 
It's too long. <laughs> like this thing is a murder weapon now. Um, and but because it became a bestseller and an um, you know international phenomenon, they were like, oh, maybe these other four hundred pages are are great. And they were. Like, I mean, it's it's sort of that idea of like going back and revisiting something, and there's new material mm-hmm. and flesh the fleshing out of characters and um, and all that stuff. When so. did you um, have you? Reread it. When was the last time you reread it? Is what I'm trying to ask. A great question. I'm 44 now, so probably like a decade ago. Uh-huh. At some point in my mid 30s, uh-huh. I, I I reread it. And uh, Stephen King wrote this great book called On Writing, yeah. which is one of my favorite things that he's ever written. That it's is, wonderful. you know, bio, you know, it's bi- uh, biograph autobiographical about his own childhood and the kind of kid that he was. And um, and then takes us through his career and his relationship with his wife Tabitha, who basically like he he thought that he was useless and a hack, and he Carrie, which was his you know which is his first book that became a massive success. He basically like threw it in the garbage, and she mm. literally fished it out and read it and said, mm. "This isn't bad." So it's like it's got all these great you know pieces of, and he talks about his. Uh, um, the struggles with addiction and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff, but it also kind of content for for someone who had read all of those books that he was referring to, and just sort of watching his his star rise and. Um, uh, but the stand, I we can get into the more meta conversation, which will bore the pants off of people of like what you know why why is Stephen King not really considered like a writer of literature, but he's sort of more, I think, like in the kind of pop culture pantheon. Mm. But The Stand felt, even though it has, it's built on sort of a genre premise, it also felt like it was qualitatively like kind of on par with the stuff that I was starting to read in school around that time in like fifth and sixth grade. Like, you know, they give you like Animal Farm and Lord of the Mm -hmm, Flies. mm -hmm. We were sort of like, ooh, this is literature. Mm -hmm. Like, these are real books. Mm -hmm. Like, Animal Farm, it's about animals. Lord of the Flies, it's about kids. But you're mm-hmm. sort of like, oh, there's like symbolism and I imagery. Smell an and like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, um, so there was a density and a richness and a complexity of character. Mm. Um, and like, that's what I really got into was just how dense it felt. And was that, um, was that, is this may just be hindsight, but was that validating in the moment? Was that like, oh, you can write, you can turn this genre into something of this? quality yeah I mean I, I guess where I'm going is like what made it formative other than just knowing it was good literature or deciding it was good literature what made it formative to you how did it I think there were a couple things I mean I think the you know one of them was that it what it, it was creating its own mythology mm-hmm. as opposed to um, trading on a pre-existing mythology sure. you know like Greco-Roman mythology or or even something like Harry Potter mm-hmm. which you know easily could have made my list because sure. I am obsessed with those books but it's yeah. like you know JK Rowling just created the, the magic exists in in all sorts of different literature right. uh, pieces of literature but she created this dense mythology mm-hmm. and designed rules of magic and came up with institutions for magic mm-hmm. and uh, like school and, and, and ministries for magic and you know and like and so yeah. like all these things and the stands is sort of saying like okay we understand that there's this thing called god and this thing called the devil but in in the stand we're going to call god mother abigail and uh-huh. we're going to call the devil randall flag and uh-huh. so it's a classic tale of good and evil but I think that the other thing that really stood out out about it, and it was obviously a major influence for all the storytelling that I wanted to do, was that traditionally speaking, 
you know, my understanding of narrative was there is a hero, Uh you know, and this person, this hero is at the hub of all the other characters, Uh but we are on this hero's journey. So even Star Wars, which, you know, was the movie that first imprinted upon me, you're like, yeah, Han Solo is great and I like Princess Leia and Darth Vader's like a great bad guy, but it's Luke Skywalker's story, Uh whereas The Stand had a dozen uh, heroes, some of which... became good guys and some of which became bad guys and 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 then some of them die along the way mm-hmm. uh which i felt was like sort of like oh my god Radical. wow like you killed sure. this guy off mm-hmm. um and so uh i kind of felt like this this felt more like life to me like mm-hmm. uh i'm the hero of my own story but um but in sonya's story i'm just a, a supporting character uh-huh. um or i'm just like uh, i'm an adjunct to whatever sure. her hero's journey is sure. and so starting to see the way that everybody interlocked and then he did that uh king did that thing that george r, r. martin does in the um Song of Ice and Fire books, which is each chapter is really just told through the exclusive point of view of one individual. Hmm. And so in The Stand, there's a guy named Stu Redmond, uh, who, I th- if memory serves, he kind of starts out more or less in like Vermont. He's mm-hmm. like in Stovington, Vermont. And then you jump to this guy, Larry Underwood, and he's in, he's in New York City. And this woman, Franny, and this guy, Harold, they're up in Maine. Mm-hmm. And it just, you're just hearing it all from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And as they're gradually kind of making their way towards one another and I, I kind of felt like that idea of like oh this is cool like yeah. it's the team coming together etc but exploring multiple points of view not really understanding who the hero was mm-hmm. uh, presenting a world that was you know kind of uh, spinning on that axis of there's a purpose behind all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is all happening for a reason, but you don't exactly know what the rules are. And then the mixing of the supernatural and the natural, where you've just described every show you've ever written. That's exactly right, and all, <laughs> and all the shows that I love. But I love dense, sprawling mythologies. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, interesting. So interesting that this might be a genesis for that, or that that you see it as that. You know, this oh, and, points to one book. This and Watchmen, sure. you know, were the, were the two kind of seminal pieces of writing that made me kind of lock in on and say, like, oh, that's the kind of, that's that's the music that I want right. to play. We'll get to Watchmen in one second. I have one more question, which is, did were you storytelling already at this age? Were you writing creatively? Were you, did you journal? Were you... Yeah, I mean, if if you believe my mom, and I do, um, <laughs> I will. You know, I was I was I was telling stories. You know, when I was you know three or four uh-huh. years old, and then she would transcribe them. Really, and I think that the Does stories she still have them somewhere. Oh, I, I, that's awesome, I, Damon. I, uh, that's so great. I suspect she does, uh-huh. but I think that my stories were mainly kind of derived from the things that I was. You know, see, they were sure. more like re- retellings of, of things that I was watching versus like I have this incredibly original idea, and I was. I mean, I was so I saw Star Wars when I was four in 1977. So almost all my stories were basically just right. bad Star Wars ripoffs. Right. Um, but I was I was striving for some level of originality, whether or not I captured it. As yeah, I I I, I, th- I think you did. I think you did. But mm. I'm also like I feel like I mean everyone's everyone points to this example, but we wouldn't have Shakespeare if he hadn't been retelling stories we all knew. So I think there's a complete legitimacy to taking tropes and turning them into your own thing. For sure. Um, 
I watched my daughter Billy do a puppet show on Thanksgiving that she endearingly pulled out every stuffed toy she had and decided to entertain all 22 of our guests with a puppet show. And it was that moment of feeling both completely overwhelmed with pride at my daughter and also like... Just I have some it. notes. You just have yes. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Just, a couple of thoughts and also just tone it like just right, half, yes, baby, exactly. just half. What's Rain the bunny's motivation? <laughs> just, I just didn't care. I, I lost him a little bit there. A little bit, yeah. but also like now let's just calm it down and put it all away because I can't be that parent. I can't be the parent who's like dotingly watching on, waking... Well, you know, 22 guests have fallen asleep behind me with their sort of my indulgence of my daughter. But I I relate because I watched her do her puppet show and I felt the regurgitation of myth and story and the stories that we tell her and the stories we're reading to her. And it's just, you know, interesting. You're the first interview I've done for season two. Really, like, having listened to season one and sort of thought about it, like, the consolidation of what we are, who we are in childhood and what these stories that we hear and how they... how, how it just goes without saying, but how formative they are. Like, sure. they just become the stories that we then retell and retell and the ones that echo and chime, as you say, these sprawling big stories with multiple heroes becomes that 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 becomes your motif is both sort of inevitable and yet still somehow extraordinary that you can trace it back to yeah and 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 i think in many ways i agree with everything that you just said and it, it it is also a religious experience and by that i mean if you sort of look to existing on the planet prior to the 19th of the 20th century particularly in western culture the only stories that you have are religious stories Mm. primarily just you know okay there's the you know there's Mm. the bible whether it's the old testament the new testament or it's a combination of the two and then you know once the printing press comes along and that's obviously well before the 18th century but you're starting to see now fiction Mm. and like now these new myths are basically being built but Mm. i think that by time i was born in the 1970s in america uh you know with primarily my father was was a devout atheist and my mom was Jewish but like uh, you know culturally Jewish as opposed to like you're supposed to believe this chapter and verse so I had exposure to those stories but like my Bible like my myth basically Mm -hmm. came from you know a variety of different influences Mm -hmm. and fiction writers and movies and television shows and all that stuff but they were all basically channeling those same same fundamental ideas Mm -hmm. of you know morality play good versus evil like uh, you know why am I here right the, you know, those deeper sort of more philosophical, that, that was another thing that I connected to in The Stand, by the way, which is like, you know, it, w- it felt like it was philosophical. Mm-hmm. It felt like the characters had real purpose. It mm-hmm. wasn't just about getting the girl or, or, or killing the bad guy. Mm-hmm. It was sort of about like, I have a role to play in the larger universe and that there's something suggestive there, you know, there's, there's puppet strings uh, at, at play and mm-hmm. I don't know who's holding them, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm either rejecting my purpose or I'm embracing it. It's so interesting because I want to talk about The Watchmen, but that also, that immediately makes me want to talk about one of your other books, which is, um, uh, not Atlas Shrugged, uh, The Fountainhead, yes. Ayn Rand. Yes. Just because of what you just said about, uh, so we may need to blend them all, but yes. um, but the role, you know, The, the Fountainhead, Ayn Rand, uh, was published in 1943. Howard Rourke and his rugged individualism and his... Uh, the ferocity of his belief in the role of the artist sure. and the responsibility of the artist to himself, not his civic responsibility, but his role. And and I guess just following up from what you were saying, like this idea that, that an artist has uh, a story to tell and that nothing must compromise it and that nothing must get in its way and that as civilization evolves, 
so artists are the ones that are going to be supporting it. I mean, he's literally an architect. He's sure. literally yes. building things uh-huh. that are holding, holding civilization up. It's interesting because he seems at odds with these other stories that you've loved, which are who are these everyman heroes who are all out, in a way, in more of a community way. They're all the heroes of their own journeys, but they're doing it in support of something larger. And Howard Rourke feels like he's not doing that. Do you, do you, do you feel that with it? Yeah, and, and he, you know, he he's... Uh, I think that the word anti-hero sort of like, it, it becomes a catch-all for... Sure. But it's it's what, what, what the opposite of a hero is. But I think that the idea that... Uh, that Rourke was simultaneously very unlikable, mm. but like profoundly charismatic. And like he had a code. Mm. That was the other thing where, and his code was an artist code. And I, I appreciate architecture, but I'm not an architecture mm-hmm. buff. And I think that the real uh, accomplishment in that particular book, because I've read other, um, you know, I've read Atlas Shrugged, I've, which is great, but I think that the reason that the Fountainhead really stood out for me was something that I had really relatively no interest in. Mm-hmm. Appreciation for, but no interest, mm-hmm. like basically came to life. And it, it's because it was using art as the language and the, mm. and the sort of idea of like how he related to others. And then, uh, and then Keating, like the, the, the idea that there is this sort of force of mediocrity out there <laughs> and, and that the artists, um, you know, g- greatest foe is mediocrity mm-hmm. and compromise. Mm-hmm. And so that, um, and you can't really have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the system basically falls apart. And uh, I think that uh, I, I am definitely still a huge fan of that book just because I think it's marvelously written. And I, I read it in college. And the reason that I read it was this a young woman that I really liked what you know had had mentioned that it was her favorite book and I was like this is my in and then you know and then it's it's also and I know that it uh, again I can only say like this was my experience when I read it as a 19 year old mm-hmm. which it, it, it was like really sexy to me because mm. Rourke's relationship with like Dominique yeah. it wasn't until like later that I was like ooh this is kind of problematic right. like I mean is <laughs> no, this I'm like with you, totally. is this rape like what's going <laughs> what on what's her story yeah. you know she she, she felt like she had the same rugged individualism and that she's kind of a cynic. She's sort of more like, I believe that Rourke is right, but I know that the world is not going to allow the Rourkes of the, uh, you, you know, to, to sort of thrive. To succeed, yeah. You know, so uh, all that dynamism. And then, the you know, as, as is the case in, in most of Rand's books, you kind of get to the the final 100 or 200 pages and it's just this massive monologue of dense uh, <laughs> philosophy that's, that, that fundamentally abandons what we would traditionally call uh, a story. But I was like, what really is just so striking about uh, about the Fountainhead is and, and why, you know, here we are, you know, 70 years later and guys like Paul Ryan, who I have n- nothing in common in terms of what their political beliefs, but he basically identifies as, as a Randian, you know, mm. it's like mm-hmm. he, th- this, this idea of objectivism is something to be celebrated and you sort of go like, oh, that's really interesting in, in terms of we both kind of have a level of respect for this philosophy, mm-hmm. but we don't we don't agree about like what space there is for that philosophy because I think uh, Rand was very specific in saying that socialism sucked right and that isn't me saying I'm a socialist but it, I am a bleeding heart liberal and right. so this sort of fundamental idea of like 
there can be no exceptionalism unless there's mediocrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had the, the pleasure of working on a movie with Brad Bird, who made one of my favorite Pixar films, The Incredibles, mm. which is basically built on this philosophy of like, no one is super um, <laughs> unless there's people who are less than super. Right. And we shouldn't be giving trophies out for participation mm-hmm. because that basically lessens the value yeah. of the trophies that we give to people for excellence. Right. And we are a very trophy obsessed culture mm-hmm. and it's crazy that like the National Book Awards exist or Pul- Pulitzer Prizes and you're just basically like the, so these books are competing against one another yeah. or these you know we're giving Emmys or Grammys mm-hmm. out like we're basically putting art you know on the field of play yeah. and seeing and, and making some determination about what is best right um, but I always think about Rand when uh, when those sort of situations arise and you know R- Rourke is just kind of um, I, I really respond to characters who are Rourkish. Um, <laughs> you know uh, Don Draper is one of those yeah. is, is is one of those guys. Um, he's so good at mm. uh, being an ad man, yeah. but he's such a fucking mess. Yeah. And that's the other part of it, which is, you know, oh, like to be an artist is to be emotionally dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And that like was like one of my primary takeaways from the Fountainhead and mm-hmm. a little bit scary too, because it's sort of like, if I'm an artist, does this mean that I'm going to you know, that I'm going to be dysfunctional and yeah, what does that mean? totally. No, we have this, I used to have this conversation a lot with, with uh, friends, was like, how how fucked up do I have to be to be good? Yeah. And, and am I not fucked up enough? Do I need, should I, have, should I have got more fucked up? Right. In order to have more to access, to have more, you know, of an emotional pool to draw on. I, I'm with you with Howard Rourke. I did not love the book when I read it and mm. I read it a long time ago. I read it in my 20s as well and I haven't read it since. It'd be interesting to revisit actually. I, I found him too too strident, too opinionated. I didn't relate. I felt for Dominique and I felt weird compassion for the like mediocre Peter Keating. I felt like, what's, what's fucking wrong with that? I mean, I hear you, Howard. I get it. We'd all love to be like you, but... A girl's got to eat and a living must be made. And yes. you can't eat your high morals. You know, you can't pay your rent with that. Right. I'm wondering now whether at the ripe old age of 43, whether I revisit that and I go, no, I, I, I hear you. There's room for both. There's room for both, which is, I think, where you're, yeah, where I, you're I, going. I'm more interested to ask you when you say you didn't like it. Like, I, I kind of feel like, was it upsetting to you? Did you have an emotional reaction to it where it's sort of like, that's where I get confused sometimes in mm. terms of my response to mm. literature or music or there, there's something that I can't tell the difference between something that upsets me and something that I don't like. Yeah. And then, you know, can I have, can I evaluate this, you know, this piece of art as something that is good or bad or I like or I don't mm-hmm. like versus how does it make me feel? Right. And I can just say like I've never reread The Fountainhead uh-huh. ever. It's the only time that I that I've ever read it. And so like for me to base it I couldn't even like kind of walk you through the plotting po- no. plot points. I just am, am, am sort of like oh, I I remember why I read it. I remember really liking it. I remember this brief and sort of like tempestuous relationship. Did you? That I, I was going to say. Did yeah. you get the girl after after reading the book? We were already kind oh, you of were already like kind it, of in we, it. we were already in the flirtation, uh-huh. but the, but it, it it was like I really want her to like me, uh-huh. and you know it was a it, it was a college relationship, uh-huh. the half life of which is sure. it, is fleeting, but. I really liked the book, yeah. and I was God was going to pretend to like it, whether I did or not. <laughs> I found it very compelling. That sounds about right for a college relationship. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the Watchmen, which uh, 
tell me when you read that. Was that contemporary with, with contemporary with the Stephen King? Was it later? Well, I I I read it when I was twelve years old. Mm-hmm. It's a comic book, okay. so it was released uh, as single. There are twelve issues, and it was released as single issues originally on a month monthly schedule. Mm. But um, Alan Moore. Uh, who is the writer and Dave Gibbons, who is the artist, and the, the, so they're co-credit. You know, they're it, it's by those guys. But Alan Moore is largely to blame by his own admission for falling behind on schedule. Uh huh. So by time you got into, you know, the final issues of the book, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, there were maybe like two or three months between each issue coming out, and so I read it in a very in a serialized. Uh, mm. fashion in much the same way that we watch television now mm-hmm. and because it was in the mid 1980s 85 86 there was no internet obviously and so the idea that inside the you know the kind of comic book fan community it was all word of mouth that this was the new sound wow. and i think that the idea of like it, it trans watchman tra- transcended uh, this is really good, or this is a really good comic book, and entered into that. I've never seen mm-hmm. this before. Yeah. Also, I'll, I'll never forget it. When my dad handed me, so he had read the first two issues, uh-huh. and he handed me the first two issues, and he said, "You're not ready for this." <laughs> and um, and uh, great words um, from parent. In the second issue of Watchmen, there is a very graphic rape scene, mm-hmm. um, and I think that may have been my first sort of like what what's rape mm-hmm. you know like uh what's happening here mm-hmm. it was sort of like i understood what sex was mm-hmm. i understood where babies came from but this idea that a man could forcibly mm-hmm. rape a woman was sort of like introduced to me right. you know in a in a comic book yeah. and also our feelings about comic books are that they're safe mm-hmm. you know like batman's going to get the bad guy right. superman is going to win and and watchmen very clearly basically said we're going to present stark real psychological examinations of people who put on masks and ask like who are they and why do they do this mm-hmm. and with the exception of one individual dr manhattan none of them really have powers right. um to speak of they're just vigilantes and it's also it's a historical story in that it's set in an alternate version of of 1985 mm-hmm. so in 1985 where there are superheroes or costumed adventurers as 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 they're called in this world where we've won the Vietnam War and Richard Nixon is still the president of the United States and um and fashion and technology and music and cuisine all look slightly different than they did to me mm-hmm. sitting there in the mid 80s so this it flashes back all the way to the 1930s mm-hmm. um, in its storytelling. And so this idea of like, it just felt so rich and so thought out and uh, in every single panel. And again, Alan Moore deserves all the credit. It's it's his, it's a, a masterwork, it, maybe his, his greatest piece of writing ever, but Dave Gibbons, who was the the artist, you know, there, there, there was an emotional depth to the characters mm-hmm. um, that like, that I had never seen before. And I started really having uh feeling things uh-huh. you know um a uh, level of uh of, of real empathy and sadness and all the characters in watchmen are sad um mm. 
And that that to me was really interesting because the idea that superheroes even could be, could be sad, sad, sure, you know, radical, yeah, um, they could be angry, they could seek vengeance. But the idea of like, oh, you skipped the part in the Batman story where he was sad, right? You know, where or this idea that. Batman is basically avenging the death of his parents because they were gunned down in front of him when he was a little boy. And he's super like, but when, when does that stop? Right. You know, he's dressing up as a giant bat and we're celebrating that as right. opposed to saying like, this is a psychosis. This is insane. <laughs> you know, um, and sort of unpacking all those ideas. And I think then, and then the other thing is like, there was sort of a sense of humor. Mm. Um, I think we would, we would call it trolling now, mm-hmm. but Alan Moore loved comics and the history of comics so much was and he was also an outsider from the UK and so he has this dense history of American superheroes through Superman and Batman but also sort of the irreverence of a Brit mm-hmm. and he sort of cut his teeth um, writing a lot of mostly science fiction stories in the UK he did this thing called Future Shock and and wrote on Judge Dredd which is a very popular mm-hmm. and before he was recruited by DC and started writing American uh, comic books but every time that he would do his spin on Superman or Green Lantern or most famously Swamp Thing he reinvented mm-hmm. uh, it with like his own sort of I, again I'd call it trolling but it was sort of this idea of like I'm not afraid to make fun of this thing that I also worship yeah you know and so that created this real interesting frequency of fun um, without ever like desiccating like at the altar of comics dumb and it also elevated comics into something that was like really respected as um, as literature Mm -hmm. and that was all happening live for me and then most importantly it was a mystery Mm -hmm. and Whereas the stand certainly had mysterious elements in terms of like who who you know who is Randall Flag and why why is he like the premise of Watchmen is that there is a murder committed in the first issue uh, this this character called the comedian is is murdered and you and so it's asking the question who killed the comedian and why mm. and by the time you get to the twelfth issue the identity of the murderer is revealed but the why is so vast and so complex huh. that it's takes these 12 issues to build it and at the, the the thing that I really remember firing my neurons was at the end of every issue there'd be these kind of ancillary materials so in the first couple issues of Watchmen there were excerpts from an autobiography written by one of the characters in it oh, called, wow. who's, who's largely off panel um this guy hollis mason and then so you're sort of like oh that's what it's going to be every issue of watchmen i'm going to get another excerpt of of under the hood then it switches gears and you get scientific papers on dr manhattan's origin or like a playboy interview with uh, with uh, ozymandias and so like uh or there's the pirate comic called tales from the black black freighter that one of the characters is basically reading and it becomes a comic inside the comic Mm. uh, that starts up around the fourth issue and then one of these ancillary materials is basically talking about the writer of that comic Mm -hmm. and why pirate comics are popular in the mid-1980s of this world is because superhero comics wouldn't be popular in a world where there are actual superheroes Uh Um, so just the amount of thinking the levels of depth the world building like it was just off the charts yeah 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 that sounds extraordinary it really does yeah that's one to read I have it on my list and I see you 
you got one there and you're adapting it, right? For uh, HBO, is that right? Yeah, we are. Um, uh, Doing I, your version? I think that we'll, we'll, we'll see if adapting ends up. Oh, is that up, not the word? Sorry. <laughs> It may it may be the right word uh-huh. it, it, at the end of the day. So, do you watch Fargo at all? Yeah. Um, so, I, I kind of feel like I wouldn't call Noah Hawley's version of Fargo an adaptation. No, I agree. Because the movie exists inside of of his world, and so everything that happened in the movie Fargo. It does precede the television show Fargo, so you know they find a bag of money in the first season of Fargo, and you're like, oh, that came from the movie. Yeah. But it's also Noah is pulling from other areas of the Coen Brothers canon, and yeah. so it, it and evokes like no, Lebowski, and totally. and it's also his own thing. So I don't know. I think that it's widely known that Alan Moore does not want Watchmen to be adapted. Uh-huh. So I'm playing a bit of a game of semantics here Got and it. saying, I'm not adapting I, Watchmen. I get it. You know? I get it fully. I'm married to um, Davy Holmes, who created uh, Get Shorty. Oh, so, wow, yeah. Yeah, okay, so that's cool. Davy's show. And, yes. and I... Uh, I haven't so checked it out yet, but I'm I hear it's great. It's Romano, right? with these yeah. semantics. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, yes, exactly. And I think it's it's not an adaptation, nor is it an homage. It's simply, a, you know, a, a take Making a, a, a great source material and then expanding it and leaning into it and rolling it around and turning it into your own version. So yeah, and that's the spirit of what he did in Watchmen in the first place. And it's not to take you know he created this that it's an original world, mm-hmm. but the basis for that world is on these uh, other characters that DC had just bought from this other comics books company called Charlton, and he did riffs on those characters. But all his other work. You know that I that I love whether it be Swamp Thing or he wrote uh, an amazing Superman st- story called Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and a great Batman story. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like the the idea that he came in and and told iconic stories with characters that he didn't create, mm-hmm. and is now turned around and said you're not allowed to do that with the <laughs> iconic characters that I created. I sort of feel like um, you know his own hypocrisy yeah. enables me. <laughs> To uh, like to, to defile his yeah for sure yeah and I'm I'm just always reminded of uh, when when I fell in love with my wife and I wanted to propose to her mm-hmm. she's from the south born in Kentucky raised in in Jacksonville Florida but her her dad and mom are Kentuckians and so I was like do I have to ask their permission mm-hmm. like how does how's this work and she was like don't ask my parents permission to marry me. Like, you know, like that's, you ask me. Sure. Like, it would be nice if you like asked for their blessing. Right. And I'm like, what if they don't give it to me? And then she's like, fuck them. So <laughs> I feel like I I have to uh, yeah. I, I ask uh, Alan Moore for his blessing, yeah. but I have to be prepared for him to tell me to go fuck to go myself. Fuck his, and then do it which, anyway. Yeah. I'd be kind of disappointed if he didn't tell me to go fuck myself. Right. I mean, you know, that's, if Alan Moore was suddenly like, huh, like, let's see what you do with it. I'd be like, <laughs> Like this is not the Alan Moore that I that You're I know and love. That, I yeah, really yeah. I want you to to hate the very idea that this exists. That's so There's something funny. a little bit punk about about doing it. Yeah, it feels it it feels riskier that the progenitor of this material, one of them, Dave Gibbons is the other one again, it is basically saying uh, you do this without my permission. Right at your own peril. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move us on to the next one because I yes, want us not to please. run out of time. Your other book, one of the other books, was Great Expectations, which mm. was just so fun to see. And I'm struck, too, that that is another serialized read, although it was not serialized when you read it. But, right, yes. But that, <laughs> but that you 
gravitated towards another book that strung out a story and that ended every chapter with a cliffhanger, you know, cliffhanger. Sure, sure. Um, has multiple hero. I mean, Pip's the hero, but but yes. we've got a lot of people to root for in that book. Right. And, um, how old were you when you read it? I think I was like a fre- maybe a freshman in high school, uh-huh. so I was in ninth grade, so fourteen or fifteen. Was somewhere, it your first somewhere Dickens? in there? It was my first Dickens. Yes, absolutely. Um, and my fa- and and my favorite Dickens, uh-huh. which is why it makes the list. And then. I, I, I'm only realizing this now as you're sitting across from me, but this was, De- you know, Desmond had his copy of uh, Our Mutual Friend, and the ba- and Carlton is also a huge Dickens fan. Oh, I think really? that's like when he and I uh, first met, um, and he hired me, he was running the show called Nash Bridges and gave me really one of my first jobs in the business, oh. but he very quickly outed himself as a Dickens fan, and he mm-hmm. told this story about John Irving who almost made my list, but I'm also a huge John Irving fan. Um, uh, Hotel New Hampshire and Prayer for Owen Meany and, uh, um, and Garp, of course. Uh-huh. But, uh, but and, and I don't know if this has changed, but the, or, or if it's an urban legend, but Irving basically is a huge Dickens file, like yeah. obsessed with Dickens. And the one Dickens book that he has not read is Our Mutual Friend. Mm-hmm. And the thinking is that basically he's like, when I realize that, I, that death is imminent, um, <laughs> then I'm going to read it, but I'm sort of like I'm I'm, I'm keeping it. That's it's like great. I hope you don't die in a car crash. Yeah, like yeah, I hope yeah. that you get some sort of a warning. Yeah, but that's so um, sweet. like that's, I have not. It's one of the few I haven't read either. Yeah. Yeah, but but again, I think you know for Dickens, it's the multiple characters. It's the and and also coincidence. Mm. Like that to me, I think is something that I that I love I love co- I love hearing about coincidences in real life and I love coincidences in narrative fiction but I think that it's also a dirty word in narrative mm, fiction sure. the idea of coincidence mm. it's a note that I get uh, often mm-hmm. and and legitimately so because it's sort of like okay well that's convenient this feels contrived yeah. you know and you you can't just have John Locke say I think everything's happening for a reason <laughs> and then and then but it, it's still a coincidence yeah you know and so like when when is a, a greater cosmic uh, power at play and sure. when is and and Dickens seemed to just like you know be able to pull that off every mm-hmm. time where it was sort of like his plots are built and, and especially in terms of the way that they all come together at the end they're built around a tremendous amount of sort of coincidence and mm-hmm. happenstance mm-hmm. but it never feels like it's a cheat or contrived mm-hmm. um, there's something kind of like delight uh, delightful about mm-hmm. it and I think that you know the reason that so much of his writing is you know kind of still holds up and is still taught and can be appreciated in the way that it is or, or that a Christmas Carol um, like has this kind of like eternal longevity like Mm -hmm. every single year you know they're remaking kind of some version Mm -hmm. of it uh is is like sort of built around his tone and that's Mm -hmm. another thing that i think that that is really important to me in terms of the books that i read is that there is just like a and, and it's indescribable right where you say like all of Rand's books have a very specific tone to them. Mm-hmm. There's something a little bit cold and impersonal, mm-hmm. and the characters are experiencing experiencing emotions, but the way that the emotions are conveyed to the reader are very clinical. Yeah, you know, and and King has his own way of sort of of doing that, and maybe to the di- diminishment of his artistic merits, but it's sort of like considered like a little bit more pulpy mm-hmm. his tone. But I think it's like really rich and mm-hmm. um, and delicious, and I think that we have to be able to to be a culture where it's sort of like if we're eating 
you know, filet mignon uh, all the time. What's the matter with a good cheeseburger? Sure. And you can't say that, that a great chef can't make a good cheeseburger or that sure. a cheeseburger isn't a valid form of food. Yeah. But with Dickens, there's just something like, I, I'm no literary scholar, but if, if you were to basically s- present to me, here is a manuscript that I believe was written by Dickens read 20 pages of it and tell me mm-hmm. whether or not it's it's the real deal. I feel like I could. Mm-hmm. Or, or it was basically manufactured by, by someone great. And I also love the whole mystery of Ed, Edwin Drood thing mm-hmm. where he died before... If he finished yeah, it, he finished and so it. and so, this idea of like, oh, okay, what is you know, what is the answer? We'll never yeah. know. Yeah, um, I, I'm yeah. Dickens to me is is so interesting because he he's shown up on a few people's lists, and um, there is something so heartfelt about him, and he he can get accused of you know sentimentality or of being cloying or whatever, but. The man was a stylist like nobody else. I don't know anybody who could write the insides of people and the outsides of people so beautifully and could hone in on, you know, um, a distinguishing characteristic and then that was who Uriah Heep was. He was just the endlessly hand-wringing guy. Right. Or in David Copperfield. Or, or, you know, Joe the blacksmith was just the good man. And they all have these sort of epithets that they carry throughout. And yet somehow they don't feel reductive. Somehow you always know who you're talking about, they're still multidimensional, even though they've been reduced sort of to their their signature epithet every time. I, I find Dickens um, more and more complex as I get older. I think I, as, a, as a younger reader, I loved him too. But I thought there was something uh, deceptively simplistic, not simple, but simplistic about the way he was writing. And as I go older and I revisit, and I was rereading Bleak House the other day, and I was just like, holy shit, this is just breathtaking fiction it really is yeah he's off the charts and and when i read great, great expectations obviously not as, as a chat book or serialized or, yeah or, but in its com- completed version at the back of the book was the original ending ah. you know which is sort of my understanding is and again i'm probably getting this wrong i should have looked at looked this up so i could could seem like I was more educated on it. No, but don't worry. This, ba- isn't a bo- this isn't a podcast yeah. for education. It was basically, yeah, it was serialized, and then the ending was even more sad than the the ending that we are largely mm-hmm. familiar with for those of us who have, have read the book in terms of Pip and Estella's, you know, sort of final exchange. Mm. But readers just hated it. Yeah. Um, and so he rewrote the ending. Oh, really? and, and so what has basically survived through history is the rewrite uh-huh. um, versus the original that was read by people who were and, and and I just think like all the time like what if we just basically did like another finale of Lost oh and, and we're like basically like just forget that other one and by the way like I stand by make no apologies for love the ending that no we did you, no you know you, but, but, but at the same time it's sort of like when I when I found that out about Dickens, I was sort of bummed out because I, I wanted him to be like, fuck you, this is the ending that you get. I'm Charles Dickens, yo. <laughs> Which would have been anachronistic and, and probably culturally inappropriate for someone living in, in, in now his time. Now I want time, Lin-Manuel but, Miranda yeah, to write exactly. the story of Dickens. That's, That's right. right. That would be fucking awesome. Um, let's get to your last book, Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Have you read it? I have not. It's on you my nightstand. You have to read it. Yeah, I've been told by everybody I have to read this book. This book I did read and didn't listen to um it's probably the last piece of fiction that i read i read it uh where i read it over the summer and why formative i'm always interested when there's a modern book that shows up that's formative it's the first time that i've read a book maybe ever or certainly in my memory where i wept 
while really, reading. Really, and I'm a, I'm an easy cry mm-hmm. like in a like in a, in a like in a movie or for like TV shows. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, by easy cry, I mean like it has to be done well. But it's like but if you, I just think about like that. the beginning of Up, I start to get choked. Yeah, me like too. My, my, <laughs> uh, let's not talk about it. No. But I, I will spoil nothing. I will just say you've got to read Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. and but the penultimate chapter of, of the book. Not the very end end, but like the the emotional culmination of the book, like hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm-hmm. I completely didn't expect it, oh. to, it because it's a book about the experience of slavery told mm-hmm. from the point of view of an escaped uh, slave named Cora, and it's not exclusively in her her a point of view. We uh, were also occasionally in the point of view of the of the guy who is hunting her, Ridgeway. And, and, and a couple of other secondary characters, we lapse into their point of view, but she, she is the hero. Mm-hmm. And it's just about her journey. And so obviously, like any slave narrative, it's heartbreaking and painful and emotionally distressing. Uh, there is another element of the book where, again, if you do not know anything about Underground Railroad, um, and I did not know this when I when I read it, was this again took my breath away in terms of what it once it declares what it is. Mm-hmm. So I, all I knew about it is what I'm telling you now uh-huh. is that it was an escaped slave narrative. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say like there is a genre element, uh-huh. but that almost. Uh, doesn't do justice to what it actually is mm-hmm. and and then this kind of emotional wallop and so I um, I think that was what was essentially uh, formative is the frequency of the emotional wallop why I wept is different than why I traditionally you know where if if, if I go like okay so here are here's what happens at the beginning of up and it's about these people falling in love, starting with them as kids and falling in love and then she can't have a baby and then they're looking at the clouds and they have this book and then she dies and like, and then you're like, okay, I understand why that's sad. Right. For me to unpack for you why I wept is so inexplicable. You can only experience mm. it through the journey of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, when I've come across other people who have read Underground Railroad and I just say like, oh, that penultimate chapter and like and they just nod yeah. and I kind of it's like the wake nod uh. you know where you're basically like I'm I'm remembering I this person this like is. it's yeah. unbelievable oh, it's jaw dropping oh I it's can't so, wait it's so good it's so good you mentioned um, I'm going to give you my little follow up questions now but this is one of them you mentioned that this was the last work of fiction that you'd read do you traditionally read non-fiction I traditionally read fiction but like I do like non-fiction and I'm not a huge biography guy, mm-hmm. but I like sort of like specific incidents of like a book about like Waco or the Tulsa race massacre or unpacking uh, Watergate. Mm-hmm. Like those kind of things are are interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I think in the wake of what happened in the 2016 election, mm. probably more of a lean into hillbilly elegy and strangers oh. in their own land. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of understand the world that I was... The America that I that thought I was living in, in yeah. is actually not the America that I've been living in. And I agree. so, like, as opposed to being angry about that and saying, stomping my feet and saying, but I want it to be this way, there's like some sort of 
need effort to, to kind of understand it. Yeah. And yeah. so I definitely leaned harder. And then yeah. my, my wife, I think, prefers uh, nonfiction. She she read Americana, which you and I were talking uh-huh. about earlier, and she's reading Lindy West's um, mm-hmm. uh, new book, which she just reads and, and laughs. Mm-hmm. And then and, the, and then she nods and she, she like talks to her books, which I, which I love. <laughs> That's and I'm adorable. Like, she's like, you've got to read this. Um, Is and, she who you get your recommendations from? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are some books that we read t- uh, together, mm-hmm. um, and then at the same time, yeah, That's uh, it's just sort of like sort overlapping. Of, yeah, right. And then there's books that she will explain to me in such great detail, or vice versa, that is like, oh, I don't even I'm need done. to read that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's funny. Do you? Um, is there a book that you expected to like but didn't? Huh. That's a good question. You can come back to it. Yeah, let's come back we'll to come it. Back I, can't, to I can't remember. Um, and uh, do you read poetry? I don't read poetry. Have you ever? Uh, no. I, no. I mean, I you know, I read poetry when I was in high school and uh-huh. college because it was uh, it was mandatory. Mandatory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but and I I enjoy a good poem and I like like in the New Yorker like yeah. you know those just sort of like little stanzas. Uh-huh. I go like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. But I um, I appreciate them too. They give me my dose. They yeah. make me feel like I I, I hit that. I appreciate <laughs> the artistry, but it's sort of like it's not it, it's not my jam. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I wish that I liked poetry more. Do you? Um, what's the best adaptation of a book that you know of? Uh, I think Kubrick's The Shining is probably one, you know, get, getting back to Stephen King yeah. is like an extraordinary adaptation. And what's interesting about it is that King hates it. You oh, know? does he? Um, That's uh, fascinating. Uh, to, to, he, like, uh, for valid reasons from King's perspective. But sure. I think that, you know, The Shining is the scariest movie that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a big Kubrick fan, fan. So I think that that... That's a pretty extraordinary. That's a great. Um, that's a great answer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You get to take one book to your desert island. What is it? Oh wow! Just one. One. Desert island. Mm. Mm, pro- pro- hopefully, a book that I can drink. <laughs> um, I don't know. I. I guess I probably would bring Lord of the Flies because uh, that would be, That'd be a handbook. Least, yeah. Like, hey, I'm on a desert island. Might as well. I haven't read that one since since high school either. And uh, or I probably need to bring a slightly larger book, like maybe War and Peace. I've never read it. Oh, um, there you go. But it's always like the you know that what goes hand in hand with this is an incredibly long book. It's yeah. like it's War and Peace. And let's just be honest. I'm gonna need a lot of toilet paper. You're gonna. <laughs> So, you know, I don't know what the, those leaves are going to get in a rash. So, um, there you go. You yeah. got it all. War and Peace will not disappoint that, I can promise you. David, yeah. thank you so much. This was My such pleasure. a pleasure. Thank you for having thank me and for talking books. Go read, everybody. Go read, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference. Rate us, give us some stars, let your friends know, let your family know, tell everyone you can. Go to the website bookishwithsonyawalga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about. We list there not only the five favorites, but every single book that is referenced. You can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny, tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website. So if you are interested, please go ahead and click on that. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Bookish with Sonia Walger page. You can find us on Twitter with at BookishSonia or at SoniaWalger.com. 
And you could also email me through the info at bookishwithsoniawalga.com page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. So if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show.